The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome to the Rebel Podcast. P Nate, Elder P, Garage Mahal, Tech Guy Dave, doing all this stuff. Good to be back. It is good to be back. It's been a long time since we've been sans Jordan. I put my coat on the chair that Jordan would be on, so it feels like there's another presence here. I could just change my voice a few times and, and make Jordanish statements, baptize babies and all that stuff. Like, <laughs> um, like, That's really all I said. I'm, I'm kidding. Joking. He's not uh, here to defend like, yeah. himself, so it's fair to, It's fair game to make fun of him, yep, right? That's, that's fair. Um, yeah, we're doing a, an episode. Last week when we recorded with uh, Right Now, we recorded this episode as well. And we did that because Dave, our sound guy, um, is going on a well-deserved vacation. We are not sending him on that vacation. We are not paying for that vacation, but it's well-deserved nonetheless. Um, And so we're just recording an extra thing. So just the caveat is, if something monumental happened in the world last week (laughs) and we don't talk about it, it's because this episode got recorded a little bit more than a week before it was released, which is not always the case for us. So... Does it feel weird? Does it feel like you're preparing to talk in the future? I feel like this is like, yeah, I'm, I'm prophesying what I'm going to hear myself say in two, <laughs> in two, in two weeks. Like what's um, going to happen like, in the world and we will not be talking about it. This, this is the time that everything does go crazy in the world when we can't record. Because yeah. we're not it capable of way, ourselves yeah. to just do this on our own. No. We well, we can, but, <laughs> but then we get chastised by Dave for the low quality of our audio and, and other such things. So. True, true story. During, remember, we did a couple episodes like via Zoom during COVID or when Dave was on, I can't remember like how long ago this was, but it was over Zoom. And I remember like somebody actually texted me at like, like what? Some happened? listener was just basically, oh, it's weird. Your quality this week was just really bad. I'm like, oh, that's because it was left to Nate and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dave was out of the country and uh, we can't be trusted with such things. So we are very thankful for Dave's. But speaking of sound stuff, we wanted to rectify something that we should have said last week. And that was we, we owe a, a massive shout out, a ma- massive thank you for one of our church family members. So Ryan Lackey, thank you so much. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we came in and recorded, and uh, there were a couple episodes that Dave was getting ready, and and then they suddenly weren't on the the sound card, the the, the VCR, the <laughs> whatever it is. I think the card was corrupted <laughs> yeah, yeah. or something, right? Yeah, like... the, yeah, the card was corrupted, the audio. Um, and so anyway, uh, Ryan's my like go-to computer tech guy. When Dave was like, anybody that you know who's techie. 
Ryan. That's that's how I know. So anyway, uh, Ryan actually drove out to Garage Mahal. We did the Men in Black like sweep his memory thing afterwards. So I don't think he could find his way back here. After. I put I put a bag over his yeah, head. Right, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. So Ryan actually came out. He got the card and he got off the audio. So uh, if you enjoyed our episode about books, um, that's all because uh, Ryan Lackey was uh, was uh, faithful enough to come on out and fix our audio. Can I confess something? I was I was very upset the first episode got deleted off that card that we recorded now he saved it um so you guys all heard it but i was like kind of like i'm okay with the book one getting deleted and what's funny is no one has mentioned the first episode but the book one i've gotten like tons of like yeah yeah lots of people asking about the books and asking to borrow books and asking whether our church library has those books and where to get them and all that kind of stuff so so the answer is borrow no Um, yeah borrow (laughs) no but yeah we're more than happy to point you uh in the direction of buying some books yeah anyway that was a good episode so and then last week would have been the uh, the right now episode that we uh, recorded as well. So we're talking in the future. What do you want to say? You had your I, hand up. Since we're in the future and it's closer to the date that mm. the thing's going to happen, I wanted to throw out that you will actually be speaking at a young adults conference in mm. March in Windsor. Yeah, so anybody who wants to come meet P. Nate huh. in the Detroit, Michigan, Ohio-ish area, Cross the border to a young a young adults conference at Harvest Windsor. Um, you'll be speaking there with Aaron Rock, who's a member of the Fight Laugh Feast Network, and a whole bunch of other other pastors about young adults. And so, like, check it out. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a good one. Yeah, the conference is at Harvest Windsor. Uh, Dr. Aaron Rock, who's who's part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network, he does the Leadership Now podcast on the Fight Laugh Feast Canadian side. It's his conference at his church, and I'm I'm going to be there to speak to young adults about how to get and stay married. So. I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, it would be our position that we want to see uh, young people getting married and making babies and uh, taking dominion very early. So that's you're, conference going to be all about that. Da- you're going to help me date myself how old I am. For some reason, the way you said that, like, get and stay married, I'm thinking of that, you know, that episode in Simon where he's like, you know how to take the reservation, but you don't know how to hold the reservation. <laughs> yeah, that's like, right. Many men know how to get the wife. <laughs> yeah. They don't know how to hold the wife. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, right? So lots of people are struggling with the get and some people are struggling with the stay. So uh, I'll hit it all up in in one episode. So come on, uh, that's uh, March 17 and 18 at uh, Harvest Windsor. So that yeah, good great. plug, good plug. We're kind of recording this one. And again, it was like, hey, what do you want to talk about? We got to pop out one more episode uh, because Dave's going to be away and uh, we won't have an opportunity to do this again. So we were kind of like, well, do you want to talk about what's going on in the world? But that might be weird since there's going to be a bit of a delay. There's going to be about a 10-day delay on this episode. And so, you know, it might not be kind of older news. It might be older news by the time that comes around. So we just thought we'd talk about something. And uh, and one of the things that's actually going on is actually your wife who is uh, has started a, a ladies group at the church where she's taking some of the ladies from the church through the doctrines of grace. And she's bringing in the elders to go through the various points of TULIP and uh, the various doctrines of grace. So we actually thought we'd do uh, an episode. This might be a review for a lot of people, but the reality is is that in a church like ours, and I know that at least on the Canadian side of things, like a lot of the churches of like-minded people, quite frankly, probably a lot of the people who listen to this podcast would be from some of these like-minded churches. I'm thinking about Trinity Bible Chapel. I'm thinking about Harvest Windsor, uh, Dr. Aaron Rock, and Jacob Rayom. Encounter Church with uh, Andrew DiBartolo, thinking about Steve Bambridge's church. Some of these like-minded churches that stayed open during COVID, a lot of us have experienced an immense amount of growth. I think a lot of these churches, as I talk to some of my friends who are pastors, they're experiencing growth in people who saw similar things throughout COVID, had a similar idea of what was going on in the world, sort of saw things similarly. 
but they're from all kinds of different church backgrounds. So you got Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Baptists and Christian Reform types, and all of them, despite their church background, despite their denominations, despite some of their theological distinctives, they come to these churches specifically because of the stance we take. And then some of them, you know, they sniff out the Reform theology and they they skedaddle. But a lot of people have stayed, and a lot of people have stayed who maybe the doctrines of grace are relatively new for. Uh, certainly, we've experienced. We, we've talked about this in in uh, recent episodes where certainly we get the question all the time, you know, about eschatology and things like that. But we just thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about why we hold the doctrines of grace so tightly, why we think that they're important for a church to be clear on. And this isn't in any stretch to kind of say that anybody who isn't Calvinistic or anybody who doesn't affirm the doctrines of grace is outside the realm of orthodoxy. I wouldn't say that. You hear us on this this show. We quote uh, C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer and some of these guys quite frequently. But we do actually think that this is a big deal. How you understand God's sovereignty and God's sovereignty and salvation in particular is actually really, really important. And so we just kind of want to uh, kind of defend that statement, why we think it's important. Uh, maybe there's some people who are listening, who listen to the podcast, who have come to the church, who, who don't fall into that theological category. Maybe there's some people who don't come to our church, but maybe they go to Jacob's church and they're they're hearing his theology and they're struggling a little bit because it's different from what they grew up with. So we kind of want to take an episode where we're, we're going to kind of, I guess, provide a bit of an apologetic for Reformed soteriology, I guess. Like, yeah. essentially what we want to do is we want to talk about some common objections and then we want to talk about why this matters. So It'd be less about just trying to like go through and exegete the text. I think we could, we've done episodes like that. You can go back. We had an episode on Romans 9 where we just literally walked through the text. I think we did Ephesians 1. Uh, this is early, early on. But instead of doing that, we're, we're just going to kind of talk about some of the, I guess, most common objections that people have, and then we'll we'll talk about why we think it's important to, to solidify your thinking on this stuff. So so really quick, I guess, Chris, why don't you just tee us off by, by saying, like, what do we mean when we talk about doctrines of grace, we talk about Calvinism, like, really quickly, like, what's your high-level view of somebody says, so what do you guys believe here about salvation? I would say we would hold to the five points of Calvinism. Um, so we believe God is sovereign in all things, up to including ele- election also means God's sovereign over all the bad things that happen. So double predestination. We could define all those terms if, if yeah, we yeah. want. And so we would say like the reason we would hold to this so tightly is we, we see this in scripture first and foremost. And we would play out the five doctrines as like kind of a, a an argument or like an apologetic, so to speak, of how God does the most important work in us. And so the doctrine of salvation, salvation is you've been saved, you're being saved and you're, and you're, will be saved. saved. Um, And it encompasses all that. And so this is fundamental to that process because if, I think it's a Tozer quote, if if the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God, then how God applies and does that work to us is the most important thing that we're going to dwell and study and think on. And so this becomes paramount to that. So that's why this is such a big and important thing. So what do we specifically mean that? We would specifically mean that man is beyond help himself. He's corrupt at the, at the core because of the, of the fall and of, of sin in himself, which means that God has to do all of the work to save us on his own. And that work would be definite to only the people who are called to be his people in his kingdom. That grace would be irresistible to that person. There's nothing they could do to thwart God's plan in that aspect. Sorry, I'm going to cough in a second. And then lastly, that would be, therefore, God will never let us go. The people who he has brought to himself, he will 
drag with until the end, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so to speak, into into glory, and we will be with him for all time. I tried to do that without saying any of the actual terms. Right, you did a good job. Yeah. So a lot of people who'd be familiar with this, they would they would know the acronym TULIP, right? So TULIP is sort of the five points of Calvinism: total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and uh, perseverance of the saints. I don't actually love all of those terms, but I embrace all of those uh, what those terms mean. But basically, you can think about it this way. If you think total depravity is sort of just the idea that man is completely corrupt all the way down, that we lack the ability to choose to follow God. Romans 3.10 is really clear on this. There's no one good, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one understands. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So there's nobody good and nobody seeks for God. If nobody seeks for God, then nobody finds God unless God finds them first. And so ultimately what we're saying is that salvation is is not two-handed. It's one-handed. The, ter- the theological term is monergism, right? It's mono, one. God acts in saving mankind. It's not a synergy activity that's going on there. So if you're a visual, you can think of it this way. If God stoops down from heaven and and holds out his arm, who is it that he is saving? Is his arm just fully extended for any of those who would reach up and grab it, and therefore salvation is two-handed? Or does he stoop down and draw down his hand and kind of grab us (laughs) and pull us up despite the fact that we aren't searching for him, we're not reaching for him, any of that kind of stuff? And so we believe that man is totally depraved, lacking the ability to choose God himself out without God's grace, and the gift of faith that we don't repent and turn to God on our own. And then I'll I'll just fast forward all the way to the P, and that is uh, perseverance of the saints, or preservation of the saints. And the idea there is that when you are saved, when God saves you, you're saved forever. And that that comes from John 10. Jesus says, you know, all that the Father has given to me, notice the language there, not all who come to me, all that the Father gives to me. And earlier in that passage, he says, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him, right? So this is all working together. But he does say, all that the Father has given to me, I will keep until the end, and no one can snatch them from my hand. And so the idea is that when we are saved, we are saved forever. Ephesians 1 comes along and says, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit spirit, which is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so salvation isn't like our car keys where we can lose them. When God saves someone, they are saved once and for all. Total depravity sort of explains who we were before we were saved, persevering until the end, saved and and eternally secure is who we are after we are saved. Then you can think of the three uh, acronyms in the middle, UL and I, as the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God the Father elects unto salvation. The Son uh, provides atonement by dying on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies the grace of God, won by the atonement, to those that are saved. And so you can ask the question, well, to whom does the Holy Spirit apply saving grace? Well, to all of those that Jesus died for. Who is it that Jesus died for? He died for all those that the Father elected unto salvation. And so that's how we understand salvation, and I think wrapped up in this, I guess, is the idea of God's sovereignty over all things. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's just talk in terms of specifically God's sovereignty over salvation, Chris. What are some of the most common objections for people who are coming maybe to our church, maybe to other churches, and this is new to them? What are some of the familiar rebuttals that you hear or questions that you hear? I would say most people and most Christians are okay with the T. So like, um, even though I think if you're, if you're in for that, you're in for the whole thing. But most, so too, most you, of us recognize yeah. that Scripture is very clear that the heart is wicked beyond all things, that we're corrupted from sin, from birth. Yep. Born um, in iniquity, absolutely. heart is deceptively wicked. So I, I think everybody get, is okay with that. I don't, get a, I don't get a personally a lot of 
pushback push on yeah. total depravity. I might get a little bit on the language of it. Like, what do you mean depraved? And it's just like, well, it doesn't mean you're like every single person isn't Hitler. That's just an option. It, it doesn't um, mean that you are as depraved as you could be. It means that every facet of your nature, in other words, every facet of your mind, your will and your emotions and your physical body are corrupted by sin. Exactly. And like an easy apologetic to that is, well, Romans 10 tells us everything that you do apart from faith is sin. Even the good things you do right. apart from faith in Christ is dirty rags to the Lord. So yeah. we can get that. That's a very easy one to do. So like it really focuses in, I think, on election and then it kind of works its way down from there. So I'm just going to skip to the objections of for, to, against yeah, election. Yeah, go for it. Because that's, so, I mean... You get basically three objections. I think you're right that most people are in for total depravity or or if they, they don't like the language of it and they want to argue for some kind of partial depravity, I, th- I, I don't think that there are any sort of strong biblical cases. I think it's very quick. You're, you're very quick to squash objections to total depravity. And I'm with you. If you're in for total depravity, you're in for all of it. But the most common objections, I think, come from the doctrine of election and predestination and the, uh, the doctrine of limited atonement. And then you'll have some people who, who don't like the idea of once saved, always saved, because they think that it's uh, sort of easy believism. But I think if you understand all of it, you understand that that's not necessarily true. But let's okay. go into objections so, for election. The first one that you hear is what about foreknowledge? So the idea of that God has just looked into the future, right. seen all the people who will choose him, and then ordained history in a way that those people all come to salvation. Right. So the argument here is that God looks down the corridors of time for yep. those who would have chosen him anyway, and those are who he predestines for salvation based on his knowledge of what will happen in the future. Yeah, that's that's right. Is that not true, Chris? <laughs> no, no, it's not. Oh, okay, um, okay. Very bluntly, there are verses that say God foreknew you, yep. and it's like, but in... Those in, he foreknew, he also predestined, right? That's ex- Romans 8, 20, Exactly, but what seven. he... Yeah, it is. Yeah. Anyway, um, what he's meaning there isn't he's looked into the future and and known you. It's he, he knew you before he created you. Basically, it's it's an intimate knowing. It's a right. knowing that's like the same know there is the one that he uses when he talks about like Adam knew Eve. Right. Like and, um, he and was maybe intimate. He's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was intimate with <laughs> yeah. Eve, and so like it's not a he looked in the future and was like, oh, you're gonna like me down the road. It's a God created you prior to you. He foreknew you. He knew you intimately before you were a, a thing. Right. Like, and so like, like his intimate thoughts about you are, are part of what fashioned you together in your mother's womb. Like this is that, that's that, that sort of intimate knowledge. Exactly. The other part of that objection to that is just, it's just a faulty understanding that God exists now and forever outside of the, the bubble of time, right? So there is no point in God's world that there was a time in the future for him. It's all happening. So like there is no, yeah, there yeah. is no foreknowledge. Like there, that just doesn't make any, any, any sense. So you just have to like right away recognize that that isn't a consistent position in, in scripture. Like we exist in time, God doesn't. So like yep. the idea he's looking down the corridors of time and he's choosing the the uh, multiverse that all these Christians are saved in just doesn't make any sense. It just actually doesn't hold any, any water. But it is the first objection we hear because a lot of the exegesis that we'll read on that passage about he foreknew will talk about that idea of, and like right up front, I, th- I would say this is actually something a lot of like people who would be like, I'm a Calvinist actually believe this about how God has ordained this because they, they just haven't processed out what that actually means. Right. How would you answer it? Because I know you say something a little bit different than I do. Whether or not it's based on foreknowledge? Yeah. Yeah, I think you answered it quite well. I think that what I would say, ultimately, it all comes down to whose choice is ultimately sovereign, right? Because even if God's 
election was based on foreknowledge, then he is looking down the corridors of time and your free will choice is what affects his choice of whether or not to elect you. So all you're really doing is you're playing with time in such a way that it kind of takes God off the hook, but you're still describing a God who is then beholden to the free will choices of his creation, which isn't a sovereign God. So this is a good point to, to maybe talk about another major objection, and that is the idea that do we actually have free will, right? Like that's the next thing is like, well... Does mankind have free will if God is sovereign over all things and he chooses? I'm laughing to a, to a Calvinist, free will is the F word, right? Like, <laughs> like that's the one we don't want to hear. Uh, yeah. It's just like... like, it's like I'm, actually, I'm actually much more comfortable talking about free will because I know what I mean by it. But I do hear you, and I think that there's some cagey Calvinist out there is hearing me say the word free will and uh, and yelling into their uh, their you know iPod or whatever. Yeah. So I I think I steal your answer for this. I you give an analogy when I'm answering this of the of Frodo and the Lord of the Rings. Right. I only know that because my wife came home and she's like she Nate used your Frodo thing, and I was like, <laughs> no, I used his Frodo <laughs> yeah, thing the week right. before. We can't create tension where the Bible doesn't have tension. The Bible right. is fine with the idea that man is responsible and has choice. Yeah. And God is sovereign over those choices. That's right. That's just the way it is. There's a there's a great Spurgeon quote about that. Like just yeah, it is. Yeah. Deal with it. They so don't we, argue in scripture, so why should they quarrel in our minds? Yeah. It, it, that's that's yeah. the quote. So like we have to be able to, as Calvinists, we have to be able to reconcile those two things in our mind without being inconsistent in what we think. So I, I, I think the Lord of the Rings analogy that you that you use is actually a good way to think of this. God is the author of the story. So in this, God is Tolkien. He's written out. The whole story from start to finish, he knows what's happening. But we, because we're not God, we are the actors, we are the pawns in his creation, are going through the story of time, going through all of our choices. And the, But they're very real to us, even though God has ordained what is going to happen with those, right. those things. So every up that happens in the story of the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was sovereign over because he created it. Yep. Every down that happens in the Lord of the Rings... Tolkien was sovereign over those things. So, but to Frodo and to Sam and to I'm making myself a massive nerd here, um, <laughs> to Aragon and all the all the people again of all the people who are like experiencing what's happening, all the choices they make, whether they're going to flee into Mordor or if they're going to go through the gates into Mordor, however they're going to get in, all those choices were very real to Frodo. I was trying to say for you the the, the ring part, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I always I often say that like you know when the sort of culmination of the whole thing when uh, when Frodo is there with the ring and and there's the anguish in within him about whether or not he throws the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. Nobody who's reading that story suddenly in the middle of that anguish and reading about Frodo's like, you know, tough decision because the ring has this 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 hold on him. Nobody throws down their book and throws their arms up in, in frustration and says, oh, like, you know, this isn't even a real choice for Frodo because Tolkien's already written the end of the book, right? Like nobody does that because we suspend, you know, a, a level of a believability as we enter into a story. And so the idea there is in that moment, Frodo is absolutely torn about what he will do and he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's battling about over what he will do. Yes, of course, Tolkien is written the book, but that doesn't change anything in the mind or the heart of Frodo, who is a character that Tolkien has created, who is experiencing all of these very real emotions. And so same with us, God has written, and I would just say Psalm 139 makes this very clear that every day of our lives is written in God's book before any one of them comes to pass. And so if, if your story is a 300-page book, 
the choice that you make in, in on page 29 doesn't alter the the rest of the the pages of the the story because page 289 is already written but that choice is a very real choice and god wrote that choice and what you'll make but he also wrote the person who is there struggling with the decision that's in front of them Ultimately, this comes down to a small view of God, that God can't write a story in such a way where he is sovereign over all things, and yet he writes uh, the complexity of his characters in such a way that our choices are real, and that at the end of the day, and Paul says this in Romans 9, that at the end of the day, no one will stand before God and say, what have you done? Because our choices are real and because we are responsible. Yeah, because I, I actually think the the real objection when somebody throws free will at, at this is that what they're really upset with is that they don't have a sovereignty over them, themselves. Right. They're just actually upset. They're just basically doing the same thing that happened in the garden. Did God really, did, exactly did God right. really say that? Right. Because like play out free will for a second. If you had choice, the Bible's very clear that none of us seek for God. None of us would want to be good. At the fundamental foundational baseline of this objection is the idea that there's people in hell that don't want to be there. Yeah. Well, let me be very clear. I think people, once they're experiencing that, don't want to be there anymore, but everybody who's there knows they deserve it. And so like, and that's the thing, like we have this mindset that there's people who are like knocking earnestly, on the door exactly, of God, earnestly and crying out for God, and cold. He's not yeah, saving them, right. and that's like that's not the case. Every single person deserves wrath and and justice. What we get, though, some of us is mercy. Right. None of us deserve that mercy. What we really want is we want universal mercy, and it's like, well, that isn't mercy. Then that's sin without that's universalism, exactly. Right? And that's, that's and then we and we would all reject that. So I would say, the people who are arguing for free will are actually arguing from a place of like. I really just want everybody to be saved. And so like, can I throw out a, another weird yeah, hand, it, like, w- the way I, I kind of talk people through this? So one, I would say if free will was real, do you actually want it? Do you actually want the free will? Cause like it's comforting to me to know that God's the one holding on to me, not the other way around. Yeah, Cause I would like, I would let go in a heartbeat. Yeah. I think this is actually something we see in scripture too. Think of it this way. This is a weird, I, I don't, I'm presupposing this is a weird one. There's 12 disciples. They've been with Jesus for three years, going out two by two, doing miracles together. There's nothing in the text that suggests that Judas is left out of any of that. Nope. None of it. He's there. The night before the, the Last Supper, though, we know that Judas has Satan go into him, which means he can't be saved because First John tells us that where there's light, there can be no darkness. So we know Judas isn't a Christian. Right. So Judas, who spent three years with Christ, hearing his ministry, seeing all the miracles, seeing every single thing that Jesus did, he rose people from the dead with Judas present. Yep. Judas, who had every piece of information possible to make the good choice, couldn't make the choice. He chose not to follow and yep. not to be. So like if, if it was up to man, yeah. Judas would have chosen Christ. So then you have so like the Arminian, the person who rejects this, has to then rationalize something that either Judas fell away and like just rejected and he chose to betray the king of glory himself, or God had ordained that that was what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what's the easier answer to that question? Well, the, the easier answer is that God just didn't save Judas and right. he used him for a purpose. And I can even throw a, a more Calvinistic wrench into that uh, love, that whole story for people. It. Is Do you remember when, uh, when Jesus says to Peter, Satan is trying to sift you, Peter? Like Satan is trying to take you. And he says, but I've prayed for you 
So the question is, why did Jesus save and intercede on behalf of Peter and yet not do the same for Judas? So it's like Satan was trying to take Peter. That's literally what Jesus says to him. And, and he says, Satan is trying to sift you. That's what the, the, the actual literal Greek renders. He's trying to sift you. He's trying to take you. He's trying to, to get you out from my people here. But he says, but don't worry, I'm praying for you, Peter. I've, I've mm. prayed for you. That's and beautiful. so there's this like, man, why didn't he do that for Judas? Because at the Last Supper... Satan goes into Judas, and then what does Jesus say? Go do what you're about to do. Yeah. Like, he literally is just like, go, go for it. Like, there's not that same level of like, but I've prayed for you, I've saved you, I've interceded on behalf of you, I've fought off Satan for you. There just isn't that. And so you have this picture of like Judas and Peter, and what's the difference? Just one of them, God ordained for salvation, and one God did not. And Christ prayed and interceded and saved one from the sifting of Satan, but not the other. And in fact, he said, go do what you're about to do. So I I think that those who want to fight this off, I understand why. Um, Maybe we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I don't think you can get there scripturally. And, And I would just say that for a lot of the people that you hear fight against Calvinism, it's interesting how quickly they descend into scenarios. So they'll say like, well, God then is holding people responsible and eternally condemning and torturing them for decisions that he has preordained for them to make. And like, yeah, you know what? I could use my language to make your view sound as awful as I possibly could as well. (laughs) But like, show me the scriptures, right? Because ultimately what they say is like, you know, well, it's not fair. Why then would God save one and not save another? And I kind of go like, you mean like Jacob and Esau? Like, you know, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. Like kind of like how... God softened the heart of Moses and hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It's almost like God is saying, I will harden whom I will harden, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, which is a direct quote from Romans 9. And and oftentimes when I hear people sort of fighting against Calvinism and, and, and what it implies about the character of God, it's amazing how much they sound like Paul's anticipated opponent in Romans 9. Because Paul's anticipating all of those. He says, but you will say, how then is that fair? And I would say to you, who are you, O man, to talk back? You are the clay, he's the potter, right? So it's amazing how quickly I think they they deviate from Scripture. And now don't get me wrong. What I'm not saying is that everybody who doesn't embrace Calvinism doesn't take Scripture seriously. But here's what I would observe. And I would just say this in all all level of respect, my brothers. It's about to get get spicy. (laughs) (laughs) Who are not Calvinistic. I would say this. I would just say, I think that your reasoning for rejecting Calvinism comes from an emotional standpoint. And your exegesis of Scripture is motivated by your emotional commitment to not embrace Calvinism. And I don't want to minimize, because I think from some people it comes from having unregenerate children, right? That would be a hard thing. You have grown children who have rejected the faith, and the idea that God would have not elected them to salvation is a hard pill to swallow. I can't imagine. My kids are young right now. I'm not in that boat. I, I can't imagine how hard that might be for me should this be true of my own children. And I pray daily that that's not true of my children. But to that person, just pastorally, I would say your child's story is not over yet. Keep praying, keep sharing the gospel, keep doing what you can. But I would also just say that whenever 
you have to spend an immense amount of time looking into long lost Greek words and ulterior uses of Greek words and secondary and third definitions of Greek words. And uh, you have to kind of stick handle around all of these texts. I, I had this with a friend of mine who goes to our church and we were talking about some of this stuff and he had sort of an ulterior view. He had a very latent flowers view of Romans 9. Uh, which uh, relates the whole Jacob and Esau thing to Israel and the, the choosing of the nation. It's interesting. So he had a whole answer for how he interprets Romans 9. That's fine. And then I asked him about Psalm 139, because what he was struggling with was God's meticulous sovereignty over all things. So I asked him about Psalm 139. What is it true that God has this book that he's written, and it, every day of our life is in it, and e even before any of them come to pass? And he didn't have an answer for it, and then he sent me a long email about some of the translated Hebrew words in Psalm 139 and how it could actually just be talking about members of our body, like arms, ears, legs, feet, all this kind of stuff. And so it's like God has given you all of the pieces of your body because it's talking about knitting you together in your mother's womb. And so, and you know, you read it and you're like, okay, well, assuming all of his word study is true, that's a possible. It doesn't seem to make sense with the rest of the theme of the passage. But, and I could go in and, and fight him on those nuances, but instead what I did is, okay, let's open now to Proverbs 16. What's Proverbs 16? Proverbs 16 talks about man plans his own path in his heart, but God gives every answer of his tongue. God's sovereign over the answers of your tongue, the path that you walk down, the roll of the dice, right? Every lot is cast into the lap, but its roll is from the Lord. And so you look at all these things, and, and then, you know, he kind of has to stick handle around that text. And then, you know, he has a couple of answers, a couple of things are a little bit fuzzy, and then you're like, okay, well, what about what about Proverbs 20, right? The, the heart of the king is the stream in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wills, you know? And so you, you just go through all this stuff, and, and I think at the end of the day, what people are trying to do is they have an emotional commitment not to allow God to be the author of evil, because they think that they're in some way defending the character of God. Yeah. And all I would say is that God doesn't seem overly concerned about justifying his own actions to yeah. humanity. God doesn't need our, our validation of his character. That's right. right? Like, That's right. Yeah. So I just say that to say, I think it comes from a preconceived commitment and because they are emotionally unwilling to go where the text leads, they find themselves stick-handling around the plain reading of so many passages. Almost in a misguided attempt to like be more loving, they've, they've, That's right. they, mis they misrepresent the text. Yeah, and, um, and like I said, I think it comes from a, a motivation where they, they, they are trying to defend the character of God against those who would say that he's unjust for doing what he's doing. And I would just say, God doesn't need you to be his lawyer. No. He or his PR person. He definitely doesn't. I think another reason a lot of like people reject this doctrine kind of offhand, I would I would say that's the more scholarly attempt yep. to argue against it. But I actually think sometimes it comes down to like, and I'm looking at myself sometimes, I think sometimes we're the meanies about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like the Calvinists mm. are like, once you see this, it becomes very evident in scripture. Like even in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, who sought them out? They ran away from God. God sought them out. Right. To be honest, like, remember when we were, like, what is it, 15 years ago now when you were like, just open the word, find a verse that thinks it talks about what you think, and we'll, and we'll go only through scripture. And it was like, it wasn't the Romans 9 that convinced me. Yeah. I didn't even get to Romans, to be honest with you. But I mean, yeah. like, um, it wasn't Ephesians 2. I had answers for those verses. What I didn't have an answer for was, when did Nineveh do an action to get saved themselves? Right. God sent Jonah. You know right. what I mean? Like, and, and he didn't. And his, and he and didn't his gospel presentation go. sucked. Yeah, and he didn't want to go. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's like, but then you just layer on this, like, who chose Abraham? Well, God sought Abraham out. It wasn't the other way. Who saved? God saved Noah. God sought up Adam and Eve. God chose them even before yeah. sin. 
to be his ambassador. Like, well, and, just, and you go through all the Genesis narrative and how many times is it like, well, here's the firstborn who's entitled to all that their father has, but God's sovereign choice is the secondborn, right? It's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. It's not Esau, it's Jacob, right? Yeah, yeah. And you get this, and, and you even get this when Joseph is dying, you get, who who is it? It's Joseph. And when it's not Joseph, it's Benjamin, right? Who was it who saved Egypt? It wasn't Pharaoh. It was actually Joseph. And so you look at all of these various things, and it's all pointing to the second Adam, of course, but it's also showing God's sovereign right to choose. Even at the Tower of Babel, he chose Israel to be his, his right. people. He could have yeah. chose any nation. That's right. And like when he divided them, he was the one that scattered them in the first place. That's right. And he, then he chose the one he was going to keep to himself. It's overwhelming. And so yeah. like, so I think sometimes because it's so overwhelming, we become, and not, not when I say we, I mean the collective Calvinist yep. we, and we call it cage phase of the start, but sometimes we just never grow past that or we burn a lot of bridges yeah, with just our attitude with that. That actually puts like a, there's the moral attack against God on that. Like you have to defend his character, but then there's the like, I don't want to be like Jeff over there who's cage stage mean Calvinist. You yep. know what I mean? Like because it's like motivated, it's like, well, there's mean Arminians too, but they're just not as in your face about it. Cause like, honestly, I just don't think they have the text to back it up. Whereas we use like, it's, we hammer it home and like, you know, when you get excited about something, you want everyone in the world to know it. Yeah. And so like, I, I think though a, too, I mean, it's funny because I think pride is at the root of it. Right. And it's interesting that like, I think Calvinism is very, very clear. When I think through the great men of history of the Christian faith, I mean, it's overwhelmingly the vast majority of them are Calvinistic, and it's not even their main thing. It's just kind of like that's the obvious point. I say that to say that I think it seems so obvious to those who see it, and it seems like you have to fight against the text of Scripture so less that it almost instills in us this sort of like Gnostic pride. So it's, so it's interesting that because like the Gnostics believe that there was some sort of secret knowledge that would needed to be ascertained in order to um, receive true saving grace. And so there was this secret knowledge and, and that sort of thing. And, and I, I think that Calvinists believe that they've received this sort of, and, and how many times have you talked to somebody who's like, oh, when they discover Reformed theology, it's like, oh, it's like I was getting saved all over again, right? And there really is that experience to it when, and I think it comes from a, a surrendering to the text, you're just fighting the text less. Mm. And there is something about the childlike faith that comes from it saying like, man, I was completely dependent upon God and he saved me completely. But then there's this pride that I think the enemy uses. So you've come into this profound thing that ought to shape your faith and make you humble. And the enemy comes in and, and makes you proud about the, the knowledge that you've received. So it makes no sense because any true Calvinist ought to have no room for pride because they recognize yeah. it had nothing, literally nothing to we, do we with it. We should me. be the most humble. We should be the yeah, most yeah, humble. Yeah. But I think that's what sort of happens. It, it stems from pride. And so I think that Calvinists need to be the most diligent of all people in fighting pride in us and being patient with people. Because, I mean, you just alluded to the, the year-long journey that it was for you 15 years ago when you and I would get together with our now wives. Uh, Colleen wasn't my wife at the time. But we'd get together when Colleen and I were dating, and you and I would argue about Calvinism for, for a couple hours. And then you'd get frustrated with me, and so we'd leave it there. And then we'd talk about superheroes or something else. And then next time, you'd come back with some answer. But, but that was a long process for you. And before that, it was a long process for me. And so we can't 
be so arrogant as to assume that we are far more articulate than the person who helped us see these things in scripture, and therefore somebody should see it the moment we show it to them. So it's patience with people who don't see it, but it's also trusting that the Spirit of God is at work within regenerate believers who will lead them to truth, and so you're, you're patient with however long that journey to truth takes in their lives. But then also just making sure that your character and your orthopraxy is bearing witness to the truth of the doctrine that you claim to believe, I guess. No, that's great. Yeah. I think we covered, is God fair? Because you went into Romans 9. Yep. Um, we covered free will. Uh, I think the other one yeah. big, the other big one is like limited atonement, right? Like what people really struggle with the idea because limited atonement, first of all, it sounds bad. Like whoever came up with the name limited atonement is just bad at PR, right? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. they should call it, I know you like the term particular atonement. I, I like yeah. the term definite atonement because when you think about it, if somebody says, I believe in limited atonement, the other guy says, I believe in unlimited atonement, who sounds more biblical? <laughs> it's the guy who believes in unlimited yeah, yeah. atonement, right? But then if you reframe it, I believe in definite atonement. Somebody else believes in indefinite atonement. Well, now I sound more biblical, but but I think at the end of the day, it's the recognition that everybody limits the atonement. I just sound pretentious. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> very particular. <laughs> And you're imprecise. Um, Everybody limits the atonement, right? Because not everybody is saved. So anybody who believes in an eternal hell limits the atonement. Some limit the extent and some limit the effect. I would say those who believe in limited atonement, as it's described in the doctrines of grace, we minimize its range or its extent. In other words, it's not for all people. Jesus didn't die for all people. He died for the elect, all those that were predestined for salvation. But those who believe that Christ died for all people, they actually limit the extent of the atonement because they don't believe that Christ died to secure salvation. He died in order to provide opportunity for salvation. And so like one of the analogies I use is like, picture a philanthropist who's going around passing out $100 bills, right? So he's going all all around the streets and he's stuffing everybody with $100 bills. What the Arminian wants to say is that the argument is over the fact that he's not giving $100 bills to everybody and therefore he's being stingy. But what I would say to the Arminian is that's not the scenario that we're talking about here. What we're talking about is that I believe he's going around stuffing actual money into actual pockets, whereas you believe that he's going around and giving something to everybody, but it's not $100. It's a ticket to an awards ceremony where he's going to give $100 to everybody who bothers to show up. (laughs) And so the question is, what did Jesus secure on the cross? Did he secure potential salvation or actual salvation? And I would say he provided actual salvation to all those who believe. John Owen, in The Death of Death, he said, which of these three statements are true? I'm paraphrasing. He said, uh, number one, Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Number two, Christ died for all the sins of some men. Or number three, Christ died for all the sins of all men. Now, I would say nobody says number one is true. Christ died for some of the sins of all men because then we would all be lost because the sins that Christ did not die for weren't obviously pinned to the cross, weren't yeah. covered by the blood of Christ. And that's the only way to have any of our sins forgiven. So the Arminian or the person who rejects limited atonement would say that number three is true. Christ died for all the sins of all men. And then you can just ask the question, well, then why isn't everybody saved? And they would probably answer because some don't believe. And then John Owen says, well, is not unbelief one of the sins for which Christ died? And he says, if they say yes, then why is it not covered by the blood of Jesus as all unbelievers and all unbelievers saved? If they say no, unbelief is not a sin that Christ has died for, then they must say that men can be saved without having all their sins atoned for by Christ. Mm -hmm. So 
ultimately it comes down to the only option, which is Christ died for all the sins of some men. And we would just say, well, what are those some men? Who are those some men? And you can go to all kinds of passages. You can go to Titus 2.14 that comes to my mind where it says something about God through Jesus Christ gave himself for us to save us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. So who did he save? He went to the cross to die for a particular people, a special people that he would save. And there's lots of other passages for that. Hallelujah. Um, yeah. I would just say to kind of tease think, well... Let me just throw it. Can I drop a bomb right before we finish? 100%. Okay. Because like, so, we're so, checking off after this. <laughs> so I would just say that uh, one of the reasons that I am post-millennial is actually because of my view of the atonement. Mm. I believe that because the atonement was efficacious and powerful and potent, I believe a post-millennial reality. And I would say that some of the verses that people would use to dismantle the doctrine of limited atonement would be passages like 1 John 2, 2 that says, he is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. John 4, 14, that he is the savior of the whole world. All those kinds of passages that seem to indicate that Jesus died for everyone. And what I would just say to that is that post-millennialism harmonizes well with the doctrine of limited atonement because those universal passages that seem to be an issue are talking about the universal scope of Christ's atoning work. And I would say yes and amen, because Christ did die to save the world, and he will be content with nothing less than a world that's been saved. And so when he comes back, it will be true that he died for the sins, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, because he will come back to a saved world, to a Christianized world. So I actually think that limited atonement and post-millennialism harmonize really well. And that's where you can start to see as your theology begins to line up, you are able to work through inconsistencies that would otherwise kind of plague your view. So all Calvinists should be post-millennial is what I heard you say. Unlike what John MacArthur <laughs> once preached that all Calvinists ought to be uh, pre-millennial. Yes, I believe all Calvinists, all five-point Calvinists ought to be post-millennial. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there you go. Uh, hopefully that was helpful to somebody. I know there's lots of people that this stuff is new to, and I would just say reach out to us. There's some it great was, books. It was fun for us. Yeah, um, Five so. Points by John Piper is probably really good, really it's, simple, accessible book uh, yeah, for it's, people it's trying to easy, wrestle with it's this. A, it's a quick, easy read, I think is a good one. If you want that um, one that's a bit more scholarly, I really like um, Arthur Custance, The Sovereignty of Grace is really good. He goes through all five points, and then he talks about the practical implications in, there, in his life. Yeah, The Sovereignty of God by Pink is a deep dive in that that's so, a deep, yeah um, that's a that's a deep like, one and we didn't even really get into i think one of the things we're just talking about calvinism in particular which is sort of god's sovereignty as it relates to salvation but we would just say like i think the bible affirms god's meticulous sovereignty over all things he's sovereign over how many hairs are on your head and whether or not they turn gray he is sovereign over the sun rising he is sovereign over every might and every atom and every molecule in the in the universe everything is happening the way that god has sovereignly ordained for it to take place and i think that's the actually the only comfort for christians and the only way that a, a promise like you know god works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes is the only scenario where that promise can be true is if god is in control of all things otherwise the view of god that you have is that god is like a plate spinner running and responding to our free will choices, trying to desperately make sure that all things work according to our good. Only a God who's written the story and it's unfolding perfectly can actually make that promise and rest, as we know God is resting, he's in his eternal rest and invites us into it because the story is simply unfolding in history the way he's preordained for it to happen. Amen. All right, lots in there. Reach out if you have questions. (laughs) (laughs) That was the biggest breath you've ever taken. (gasps) (sighs) I think I did all that in one breath. All All right, bye guys.